I'm glad you're here today. Uh, we're going to wrap up First Thessalonians, hopefully, today. That's a good thing, right? It didn't take us that long, did it? Trish, glad you could make it. Uh, what? You're, you're, you're the only one here from your family? What's the deal? What's up with that? I'm calling you out. I'm calling Mike out, the kids out. Uh, we, we left off last week. Uh, in the first part of chapter 5, really what's happened here is Paul has uh, spent the first few chapters kind of giving credibility to himself and who he is and the authority that he comes from and all that. And then he begins to minister to the church at Thessalonica. This is previously where he had ministered and uh, people had come to know Jesus, and he has left them because of all the disturbance that it caused, and he couldn't really go back because it would cause more disturbance. So Timothy reported to him what all was going on, and he answered those questions, but the biggest concern that we dealt with last week was that they were concerned about the dead, those that had died since Jesus had, and those that were alive, what's going to happen to them when Jesus returns. And so he answered that question. I'm not going back. You have to go back and listen to that. So now we're coming to the conclusion of the letter right here, and he's got some really good church stuff, some good church stuff. So we're going to jump in at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And let me read to you a couple of commentaries. I'm not big on commentaries, uh, because I have to filter what other people think about their interpretation, but these are pretty neutral. A.L. Moore in 1969 says this, There is no need to see behind each injunction a special, special situation supposedly requiring particular guidance. Much of the advice and encouragement is of a general nature, such as Paul would regard right and necessary for any church. These last few verses here could go for any church. So people are going, well, why would he say these things? Was it specifically for the church at Thessalonica? Yes, I believe that it was, but it's also something that we could adhere to. Howard Marshall, in his commentary, said this, the situation is very natural, one of a pastor who knows that a number of specific topics are usually important in exhortation and has a rough general pattern of teaching in his mind, but who presents it in such a way that he adapts it to the particular situation he has in mind. I, I pray that whatever that pastor has in his mind, it's coming from the Spirit. It's hard. I'm telling you, it is hard to study and to read the Bible and not think about all the situations that sit out here in front of me. Like, you, you do that, right? You read and you think, oh, this would be good for that person, or this person needs to hear that, or you know what I'm saying? It's like, but are you hearing it for yourself as well? Well, don't think that I'm any different. I'm not judging you right now. Kind of, but not really. Uh, let's read. Verse 12, it says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who, one, labor among you, two, lead you in the Lord, and three, admonish you. Three different things he said there. 
and to regard them with very regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourself. Here's you take each word and you sit there and go. Now we ask. The reason Paul says we ask, he's not commanding, but he has such a a relationship with these people in the just in the past few years that he's developed. He trusts them and they trust him. So he doesn't have to like tell them what to do. He asks them what to do. He's not commanding. But the first thing he says is the first thing uh, is for those who labor among you. Congregational leaders such as myself, that is what he is talking about. Who is leading them spiritually? Uh, they work hard and labor hard. Some of you think I work one day a week, and I'm okay with that. Uh, it, it also says that they rule over you and admonish you. They, congregational leaders have authority over you, and they admonish you. Let's break that down. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, they preach and teach. First Thessalonians 2.11 says that they engage in individual discipleship training. Second Thessalonians 3.13 and Acts 20.35 say that they support the poor. First Thessalonians 5.14-15, coming up in our passage here in just a little bit, says that they practice pastoral care, although they don't do it alone, but the whole church does it. These are at least just some of the things that the church leaders do in which they work hard. I would love to add to that list of things that I do. I'm not here to boast about what I do, but that's just a small portion of what I do. And honestly, that's just a small portion of what you do. This and I'm not saying Sunday morning, I'm saying this community happens because of many spiritual leaders in this room. They work hard. They work, we work hard, but we rest, and that's, that's another whole thing. Uh, but secondly, it says, um, secondly, it says that you are to lead. We, we live in this politically correct age, in which people are sensitive about people who have authority and exercise authority over them, correct? We're seeing that play out in front of us even last night. Who has authority? Who wants authority? Everybody wants to have their own authority. And Paul's literally saying to the church, they're spiritual leaders and they have authority over you. I don't demand to have authority over you. Uh, I, I would hope that you would see me as a pastor that uh, trusts the Spirit, knows, knows the Lord well, and is going to lead by faith. And because of that, there's authority in that. I could be a pastor that stood at the front door like I did with the Getchell family, and demand that they put a mask on. I was, it was a joke. But, uh, 
I could demand authority for you to do that. And to me, that's not what he's talking about here. He's literally talking about a spiritual authority. Uh, in this context, Paul has in mind an authoritative function. I'm going to lead, you all lead small groups, you organize, you do things, you teach, you disciple. But then the third thing he says that you admonish. That, that's the hard one. Admonish means to uh, bring correction or to call out when something is wrong. As a spiritual leader who has authority, you are to admonish. That, that be, can become abusive, as you've seen uh, in the past. Not necessarily here, but just in other places. You'll see that people will take their authority and it becomes abuse. What Paul's saying here is this is done out of genuine love and concern for others. Like if you read his letter to the church at Corinth, where they're not quite exactly behaving like the people in Thessalonica, <laughs> they're acting a little bit different and he's needing to correct them a little bit more. He really does that. He says, I admonish you as my dear children. As my dear children. That was the perspective from which Paul admonished the Corinthians that you're my beloved child. And there's certain members in the Thessalonian church here who are not only idle, but even worse, they're, they're rejecting, they're being rebellious about the whole spiritual side of things. Uh, as we said in weeks past, they believed that Jesus was coming back. They believed that he was coming back like real soon. This is 20 years after Jesus died, and so a lot of them just quit working. And this, the leader's like, hey, you can't just stop working and become dependent upon everybody else around you. You've got to stay busy and be a part of this community and everything else and trust that Jesus is going to come back. But these people not only decided that they weren't going to work, but they were going to be rebellious about it and get other people to not work. And so Paul's saying, you have spiritual leaders around you that are telling you, one, uh, pursue the Spirit. Two, uh, we're going to lead with authority. And three, you can't do this. If you want to be a part of this community, you've got to change the way that you're behaving. And that was the role of the spiritual leader. Now, let me, let me take that and apply that here to this community, which is what we call Levner. I believe uh, when I, I, I grew up, Southern Baptist, First Baptist Tulsa, went to Oklahoma Baptist University, went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I, I highly trained like Paul in Southern Baptist world. And then I uh, served at a Southern Baptist church for 18 years. I lived and breathed denominational institutional church. And then when I began to uh, read on my own, and the Holy Spirit revealed to me that all the things that I've been taught all my life aren't necessarily the way it's laid out here in the Scripture wasn't necessarily true. Uh, I had a different mindset. Same gospel, same, same book. I'm reading the same book that I've had my whole childhood. But now I see it differently. 
I walked away from the institutional church going, how do you do this different? How can you just be a community that it talks about here in Acts and Thessalonica and Corinth and everything else? More organic than institutional. Uh, We receive questions and judgment because we're not organized like everybody else. We meet in a bar. Uh, The IRS says that as a nonprofit ministry, we're we're a 501c3 legal IRS ministry. That's how we originally organized because I didn't expect it to be like this when we first started. I didn't I just knew that I was going to do a crisis intervention, disaster relief, and teach the Bible. I didn't know it was going to look like this. And so we organized as a ministry, and it said that I had to have a board. And so I got five of my friends to be on that board. And now it's turned into this, and we've shifted them to an elder, elder role. And those are our official elders. That would be me, myself. That would be uh, Ed Hens sitting here on the second row. It would be Big John who had knee surgery this week. It would be Matt Tully. Matt, I don't know where you are. And then uh, our last one is uh, Phil Tooley. He's not here either. Thank you, Ed, for being here. (laughs) They're official elders. But you want to know the crazy thing is we have more than five elders in this group. There's plenty of elders in this group that teach and lead and are respected because of the way that they live their lives. And so for us to sit here and say we only have five elders, no, we have five official elders, but we have more than that. And then if you really want to break it down, uh, I, I, I would even say that we have women elders in here that teach that people look up to, that people respect them. Uh, but if you want to break it down to get to deacons, a deacons, deacons are people that serve, and as uh, churches go, uh, typically there's a, a board of deacons, and they're selected and everything else. I, I think we have most everybody in here is deacons. The people that serve, like... Uh, Seth and Ethan Wilson, who are in high school, come here every week along with another group of people and they set up here for you. That's what a deacon would do. A deacon would serve the ministry. There's also deacons that serve individuals and families. They do different roles, yet we don't label anybody in here as deacon because a deacon is basically somebody that serves, somebody that goes to the hospital bit, somebody that comes up here and leads singing, somebody that, that's what a deacon does. There's no reason for us to have titles in here. And then members, um, not finding members in Thessalonica or Corinth, there's no members here at Levener, you can't join this place. There's no information card for you to fill out or for you to come forward or anything like that. It's just people that want to come and uh be a family together, work together, study together, and uh, you can't apply here or anything else. It's just you choose to be a part or you don't. There's no voting among the members. There's no committees. All the financial stuff is presented to the board. It's also public information. Uh, July 15th, I had to turn in my 990 form for, for the IRS, and it's all public. Every penny that was spent had to be reported three different ways, and they all had to come down to the exact same penny, and the IRS gets that, and they make it public. You can go see it online. 
So there's no finance committee or anything like that because now if I was declared a church, if I simply said to the IRS, hey, we baptize people and we meet on Sunday morning, can you declare us as a church? They would say yes, and then I wouldn't have to fill out the 990. Then we'd have to have committees and financial people and everything else to kind of... So we take, we've taken more of a public route here, very organic. Uh, our small groups... I've done nothing to organize small groups. There's groups that meet all the time, get discipled on uh, Sunday nights, Tuesday mornings, Friday mornings. Just There's all sorts of small groups that happen. And um, yeah, we're just doing church. The way, I, the way I believe that that's the way it happened in Scripture. But we've taken, we've taken it and we've institutionalized this whole thing and... Uh, I don't know. If, if I could strip away everything that the church does except that of the cross and what Jesus did, identity, a few things, I'd be happy with that. If we can teach, teach that and people come to understand their identity, uh, I think we're hitting a home run. Verse 14, it says, And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, number one, warn those who are idle. Some translations, it says the rebellious idlers. I spoke about that briefly. Two, comfort or encourage the discouraged. Three, help the weak. Four, be patient with everyone, with all people. Again, he said it for a second time. He's like brothers and sisters. He's stressing the fact that pastoral care is the responsibility not of just the church leaders, but of the whole community. Brother, we're brothers and sisters. I am not any better than you. I am not higher than you. I'm not more special than you. I have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in my mortal body that you have living in your mortal bodies. We are the same, and so we work together. We have different roles. We all have different roles. We all have different parts of the body, but we are one body. Uh, It's important that Paul say this because in today's church, there's a tendency to farm out the responsibility of the pastoral care to staff people or to train church leaders. You know what I'm talking about? And then the church just comes and goes on Sunday mornings and that's all that they do. I pray that's not the case here. Instead, we have to recognize the whole church, the whole body has responsibility to its fellow members. What's that responsibility? I think it's to listen to the Spirit and to follow the Spirit. Whatever the Spirit leads you to do. And what's more, it's uh, perfectly in keeping with Paul's commands elsewhere that the church leaders are not to do the work alone. Ephesians 4 says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And then he literally says you do these, these three things to the rebellious leaders, those who are not just merely lazy, but they also are compounding their sin by rebellion rebelliously refusing to obey the command of both their congregational leaders and even Paul himself. They choose not to go to work. They choose not to participate and to sponge off of other people. Two, he says, comfort or encourage the discouraged. Really, he's talking about right here in the context of death. Their concern was, what about those people that died? Our role here is to comfort those and to encourage those, not only those who are grieving from death, but just issues. Like, we, 
this group is praying for the Pruitt family. Uh, Troy didn't say anything, but Jeff's still with us, right? Jeff is in Arizona and is Don's brother, and she's there uh, just waiting for Jeff to go home. But we grieve as the body, but we're here to encourage and to love and to uh, because they're grieving, they're hurting. And so that's what he's saying. Encourage the discouraged. Third thing he says is help the weak. The, the adjective here could refer to like physical ailments, but because he's, he's been talking about moral character and it's been stressed in the previous two groups right here, it's more likely suggesting that here too Paul's referring to those who are spiritually weak. Help the weak. Yeah, we've got people with financial issues and health issues and things like that, but I think Paul literally is more concerned with those who are struggling spiritually. And the last thing he says is be patient with everyone, with all. Not just the first three mentioned, but the whole church. Be patient. Verse 15 says this, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Uh, Paul here knows that the natural reaction of humanity when someone does something wrong is to strike back in anger or revenge. You know, it's like, ah, we got to get even. So here he's highlighting this principle of non-retaliation. You don't have to get back at them. He used this verb, pursue, that's a very strong verb that he's using right here. Some translations will soften it and they'll say, try to do what is good. But literally Paul's saying pursue right here. This is a strong verb. They use this verb when it comes to the word persecution. This is literally how strong that verb is. We don't have to just try to do what is good. We have to be aggressive aggressive we have to chase after we have to pursue what is good and we have to do that towards everyone towards all people and then verse 16 17 18 rejoice always verse 16 verse 17 pray constantly verse 18 give thanks in everything for this is god's will for you in christ jesus People will attach to these three verses congregational worship. This is what we do in congregational worship. Let me blow this out of the water for you. Do not attach that to congregational. Rick sang. Rick sang songs and we sing with him. That was a form of worship. I'm teaching the Word of God. This is a form of worship. You chose a donut. That was a form of worship. You breathing right now is a form of worship. Just breathing in is worship. And you don't just do that on Sunday mornings at 8.30. Paul connects the Holy Spirit with each one of these three things so... 
that's what holds this whole paragraph together. So joy, for instance, is connected with the Holy Spirit. Rejoice always. He's like, have joy. In Paul's writings in this letter, earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, Romans 14, 17, Galatians 5, 22, he's saying, have joy. You can have, think about all the things that Paul went through, and he literally is saying, you can have joy at all, t- all times, always. And then it says, pray constantly. Prayers connected with the Holy Spirit in these passages. Remember when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit will pray for us. You look at Romans 8, uh, 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Ephesians 6, 18, and Philippians 1, 19. It's connected to the Holy Spirit in every one of those verses. You, you, pagan prayer at that time, during that time, remember that they were worshiping all these sex gods. It was more of a transactional prayer. It was like, hey, the God of this or the God of that, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. It was a transaction. But prayer here, when he's saying pray constantly, he's not saying pray constantly at 8.30 on Sundays, right? He's saying pray constantly. That that's an act of the Spirit in you doing that. That I'm having a conversation and I'm having a relationship with my Heavenly Father. I'm not having to make transactions. Look, I grew up in a church where they taught us how to pray and you get up early in the morning, you pray and you have this you have this list, and you pray adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, all those different things, and they, I've come to learn that prayer is more than that. Like, I'm praying right now the moment that I'm speaking to you. I'm praying when I drive by your house. I'm constantly in conversation with my Heavenly Father. Christian prayer is more relational. And then he says this. Give thanks in everything. Oh, wow. Give thanks in everything. Again, thanksgiving is connected with the Holy Spirit. He says that in 1 Corinthians 14, 16. It's all connected to the Holy Spirit. There's this Spirit living inside of you that will cause you to rejoice always, will cause you to be in prayer constantly, will cause you to give thanksgiving continually. I worship all the time, not just on Sunday mornings. So how do you do these things always? How do you always do these things? I got a a chaplain call on uh, Friday morning. 46-year-old husband and father was killed over and died. Three little kids, wife. And sat on the lawn with the wife as she just answered, asked the question, why, why, why? And you just look at her. And I have a pretty good answer for why. But she's not in a place to hear it. And I just look at her. And Paul sit here and says, Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanksgiving. And I got a, a lady sitting here who's just lost her husband and just got now just become a single parent of three kids. The last part of that verse is it. 
For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will wasn't for that man to die. That was never his will. I've said this many times in here. Here is God's will for your life. You want to know what it is? What God's will is for your life? It's one thing. One of the questions that teenagers want to know. What's in there? Thinking, what am I going to be? Where am I going to go to college? Where am I going to do for the rest of my life? Here's God's will for your life. Walk by the Spirit. It doesn't matter what college you go to as long as you're walking by the Spirit. Doesn't matter what your career is as long as you're walking by the Spirit. God's will for your life is you to let Him live it for you. Mm. Someone says, that sounds like you're just passing out uh, participation trophies. (laughs) Well, I guess Jesus would have got a participation trophy because all those miracles that he did, he said, I didn't do it. My father did it. What I did, you saw my father do it through me. So if that's what you want to consider as a participation trophy, I gladly accept it. In fact, I'll have to learn how to me not do it myself. And that's literally what he's saying right here. You say to that for that that wife sitting in the grass. I have a savior that can sympathize with you. And he loves you dearly. And he will take care of your family. He will take care of you. The spirit of God in you is the only way you get through this fallen world. That's what Paul's saying here. I can't explain why there's a lot bigger picture that God sees that I can't see. I get into a crisis and I zoom in on that crisis and I lose focus. But there's a lot bigger picture. And he knows it. He knows it. I'm going to trust him. Verse 19 says this. Don't stifle, some translations say quench. Don't quench the spirit. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. (laughs) Again, don't stifle the spirit. What does that mean? How do you stifle? How do you quench the spirit? Look, I say this all the time. You have two choices. I've just been saying it all morning. You have two choices. You have two choices. You walk by the Spirit or you walk by your flesh. If you walk by your flesh, you're stifling the Spirit. You're not listening to the Spirit. You're not doing that. That's what it means when it says don't quench the Spirit. Don't walk by your flesh. Don't be selfish. Don't let it be all about you. What What I want when I want it. Well, this is how I feel. What am I going to get out of this? It's always two choices. You either choose the flesh or you choose the spirit. Choose the flesh or you choose the spirit. And it's what he's saying here. Don't, quit, don't neglect the spirit that's living inside of you. And then he's like, don't despise prophecy. He's saying filter what you hear. 
Rusty's up there talking, but you better be checking it with the Word of God to see if what he is saying is correct. And when it comes to listening to other teachers, throw penalty flags when you hear something that doesn't sound right. But then the question is, is what are you going to do with that penalty flag? Are you just going to throw a flag or are you going to figure out why you threw that flag? Go to the Word. He's like, go to the Word. Test all things. Look, you've got it right here. You've got a spirit inside of you. Make sure that what they're saying, what they're teaching is correct. And then he's literally saying, know the difference between good and evil. In the Old Covenant, remember this part back up here, this Old Covenant, they had to have the law. The Ten Commandments, the 613 laws, the Sermon on the Mount, they had to have the law to tell them what was good and what was evil. Now you have a Holy Spirit inside of you, and that Holy Spirit will tell you what is good and what is evil. He's basically going to tell you what's good. He's going to say, think about these things. Think about these things. It's always coming down to spirit versus flesh. Michael Martin says this, Paul did not wish the church to become so cynical that they treated the contempt with contempt those who came with a word of prophecy. Neither was the church to be so gullible that they accepted whatever a so-called prophet said without carefully weighing it and determining that it was indeed a true word of God. Take everything that you hear, not only from this stage, but from everywhere else, and test it with the word of God to make sure that it's true. Here's the meat. We're just now to the meat. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, the God of peace. We can, we can do our own peace, selfish peace, peace protest, peace whatever, but the real peace only comes from God. I have a Holy Spirit in me. Through the Spirit says love, joy, peace is a part of the fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. He produces that in me. The Spirit is inside of me. He says, sanctify you completely. I want to sanctify you completely. Sanctify means to set apart. I want you to be set apart at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You already are. Watch. He says, your soul, your spirit, and your body may come complete. How do you get them to come complete? I've got two-thirds of it. My soul, my soul, this is eternal. My soul, is you can't see my soul. You can't see it. But that's my, my soul is my, my mind, my will, and my emotions. My, my soul is different than your soul, obviously. My emotions, I think we have the mind of Christ. My will, if I let the Spirit do it, will be the same as your, yours. But those emotions, they're definitely different. But that's my soul. My spirit, I was born with a dead spirit because I came from the seed of Adam. Remember that? All that teaching? I was born dead. Spiritually dead, separated from God. It wasn't my sin that separated me. I was born that way because I came from the seed of Adam. I had a problem the minute I was born. I was separated from God. And then 
I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and he gave me a new heart. I have a new a spirit that is alive. He made my spirit alive. I am, I am totally... You get on the identity verses on there, and there's 75 verses that says, I'm holy, I'm redeemed, I'm a child of God, I'm a prince to the throne. All these things, I'm forgiven. All those things happen the moment I said yes to Jesus. That was all I did. I said yes to Jesus. Then he gave me faith, he gives me repentance, he gives me all these things. Now watch. My soul and my spirit, they have been redeemed That's past tense. It has an ED on the end of it. It's past tense. It's already occurred. It did that the moment that I believed all the way back to Jesus at the cross. So when you see me, you see my soul and spirit, which you don't see, and it's totally redeemed. That's my true identity. That soul and spirit is eternal. When I die, it goes to heaven. What doesn't go to heaven? My body this fine specimen of a body. It goes back into the ground and turns to dust, worm food. It is not redeemed. My body is neutral. It's not redeemed. When Paul says that you may become complete body, soul, and spirit, my soul and spirit is complete. It's redeemed. It can't get any better than it already is because of what Jesus did on the cross. My body, on the other hand, Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that there's this sin, this power that lives in my body, and it sends me terrible thoughts. And I end up doing things that I don't want to do because my soul and my spirit is redeemed, and I'm a new creation. I have a new heart. It's not natural for me to do those things anymore. And so when I do that, it is very uncomfortable, and it doesn't feel good but I'm going to live with that as long as I have this body. That power of sin dwells in our flesh, dwells in our flesh, sends us thoughts, and then I have a choice. I can either choose the flesh or I can choose to obey the Spirit. That's it. I'm constantly battling bad thoughts. This is where the battle is. It's not here, it's here. It's right here. I have the mind of Christ. I have a brain, I have a brain, and that's different than my mind, but my brain is like my hard drive, and it's got all the bad things that I've ever done stored right up. Everything that I've eaten, everything I've said, everything I've touched, everything I've smelled is logged in that brain and my hard drive. And so the power of sin is constantly accessing that and triggering that and sending me thoughts and junk, and I have to filter that through my mind of Christ, and I have to choose to walk by the Spirit, and I literally have to say, okay, Spirit, you've got to do this because I've failed so many times. I'm going to rest. I'm going to trust you. And so when he says, may your body, soul, and spirit be complete at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's literally saying, your soul and your spirit's already complete, but your behavior, you're getting there. (laughs) May it be all these things that I've talked about you in this letter, you're still working on those things. If you chase the spirit, pursue the spirit, know the spirit, then your body begins to line up. Your actions begin to line up with who you are. And watch, watch, watch. This is important. Don't focus on your behavior. Don't focus on the body. 
Focus on your soul and spirit that's redeemed and holy and righteous, and there's a spirit living inside of you. Focus on that. If you focus on that, the body will line up with who you truly are. We as a church, the institutional church, teach you to focus on the behavior. Fix your behavior. Fix your, don't do this. He's literally saying, focus on Jesus. If you get your focus on Jesus, I promise you, your body will line up. Your body, your behavior will line up. Last, last few verses, 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. They didn't have COVID during this time. The, the holy kiss... It wasn't necessarily a, a sensual thing. Usually men kiss men and women kissed women. That's just the way it was culturally. And this was literally a command that Paul gave to them right here as he addressed some of the internal conflicts that was happening between them. If you go all the way back to Genesis and when Esau and Jacob, who, you know, went at each other as brothers, but when they finally met in the end, what did they do? They greeted each other with a kiss. And that's because the kiss was important. The kiss was more than just a greeting. It had to do with, I forgive you. I forgive you. If Paul is addressing internal conflict in this group, and he's literally saying, hey, you need to greet each other with a holy kiss, you're probably not going to kiss a person unless you've given them forgiveness. And receive forgiveness. And this is literally what Paul is saying here is make up. You're going to have fights. You're going to have internal stuff that's going on inside this community. Kiss and make up. That's what he's saying. Get along with each other. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. And then the last two verses, I charge you by the Lord, that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. This is for everybody. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I have grace, watch this, I have grace because of salvation. I have received salvation from the Lord because of him dying on the cross and me believing. But now I have grace on a daily basis because it is the ability in me because of him to do life. That's the grace that Paul's talking about here. I have grace from salvation, but I have grace on a daily basis because I have a spirit living inside of me that says, hey, Rusty, I'll do this for you. You figure that thing out, it changes your walk. It changes your daily schedule. It makes life become an adventure. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that life can truly be uh, an adventure. We trust you with your word. Man, and I trust you with the spirit inside of us that we're able to read it, we're able to discern it, be able to test it, be able to prove it right, and just trust you and to live out our daily lives. I pray for Jeff, that Lord, you would just take him home, that you would heal his body, that you would bring rest to this family, that you would comfort them. Lord, we trust you today. I pray for my friend that I met on Friday that you would just comfort her family, comfort her kids. Just give them the peace of God that we know about in this very room. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.